the future of work. So with automation, companies are going to need different types of skills and also the communities that are around the mines, if they're to benefit you know, in terms of jobs and uh, procurement, they'll also need different skills. Welcome to Sustainability Leaders. I'm Michael Torrance, Chief Sustainability Officer with BMO Financial Group. On this show, we will talk with leading sustainability practitioners from the corporate, investor, academic, and NGO communities to explore how this rapidly evolving field of sustainability is impacting global investment, business practices, and our world. The views expressed here are those of the participants and not those of Bank of Montreal, its affiliates, or subsidiaries. The following conversation between Tom Butler, CEO of the International Council on Mining and Metals, and Dan Barkley, CEO of BMO Capital Markets, was recorded in late February at BMO's Global Metals and Mining Conference. This was recorded before the full impact of the coronavirus had arrived. While much has changed in the intervening months, this conversation remains interesting as a snapshot of what the metals and mining industry is already tackling with respect to sustainability and climate change. Their conversation immediately followed the annual meeting of the ICMM, which is an international group of the world's top mining companies that does a lot of work around sustainability. Dan and Tom discussed what the industry is planning to do as part of the broader global conversation around sustainability topics like climate change and the work being done towards a lower carbon economy. They also dug down on what the industry is doing to increase transparency around ESG matters and to make it easier for investors and other stakeholders to quantify and to understand what is happening with respect to ESG performance and risk management. This is Dan Barclay, CEO of BMO Capital Markets, and I'm speaking with Tom Butler, CEO of the International Council of Mining and Metals. Tom, to start, why don't you introduce yourself, ICMM, and the role within the mining industry? Dan, hi. Yes, my name is Tom Butler. I'm the uh, CEO of the International Council on Mining and Metals. I've been doing that job uh, for five years. ICMM's mission is to enhance environmental and social performance by collaborating with its members. The members are all committed to a set of principles. We've uh, recently, in fact, last week announced enhanced mining principles, which are additional commitments that they have made. Two other things to emphasize about ICMM. One is that it's CEO-led. So the CEOs commit to meet personally at least twice a year. This year, three times a year, because we had an extraordinary meeting uh, earlier today at your conference. They agree not to delegate, uh, not to have other people in the room so they can have really strategic decisions. That sends a very strong signal externally, but also internally within the within their own companies, just how important the, the topic is. And then the other thing to emphasize is that it's a very rigorous admission process. So we have an independent panel of experts, three people, one with, uh, one with G, one with S, and one with E okay. expertise. And they assess applicant companies and uh, they decide uh, whether people are close to meeting the commitments. And if there are any gaps, they will negotiate an action plan. And the companies have to close that action plan within two years. If uh, the panel decides that the gaps are too wide and that they can't close the, the gaps quickly enough, they'll tell them that they need to go and do some homework before coming back and having, having another go. Well, that's good. That's powerful. So when, how, when did ICMM first get organized? So we were founded in 2001. Okay. And basically the, the reason we were founded was there were a number of uh, fairly high-profile incidents in the industry in uh, the 1990s, which affected the reputation. And, you know, the founding premise of ICMM was to preserve access to capital, to projects and to markets by 
enhancing the, uh, the reputation of the industry and and the way to do that was to focus on ESG. Can you give us a little more detail on the mining principles? Yeah. I think it's a fascinating topic. ESG, I, I hosted a panel myself today yep. on that topic, and it's uh, very germane for investors, for companies, and how people are approaching the industry today. And yep. uh, I think your principles line up completely with that theme and yep. are really quite thoughtful and, and industry-leading. So first of all, what's driving this is that we've seen a huge increase in investors and other stakeholders and consumers focusing on ESG but a lot of them are unclear about how to measure that. So we're trying to provide them with tools to help them assess ESG performance of companies. We've always had a set of principles. We've had 10 principles since we were founded, but the principles were very high level and they were tested at the corporate level. So, you know, for example, we had a principle on respecting human rights, but we never went into detail at the granular level as to what that meant. So what we rolled out last week was a set of underlying performance expectations for each principle. So now, respecting human rights is the overarching principle. Underneath, you've got six or seven performance expectations, which lay out exactly what it means to respect human rights. And the other big difference between the way uh, this has worked in the past and the way this works now, or will work starting from last month, is that the self-assessments of how companies are doing against these performance expectations that underlie the principles will be at the site level. So this is going to have a lot of scale. It's the first time we've gone down to site. It's going to apply to 650 sites in over 50 countries. Each site is going to self-assess itself against all of these principles and performance expectations and report on that and disclose. So you have 10 major principles, is yep. that correct? And yep. then how many sub, each one has five or six underneath it? So the total is 38. 38, okay. Uh, six of those are kind of corporate level requirements, and then the other 32 are site level self-assessment, very granular. So for example, uh, you know, do you have on human rights, do you have a grievance mechanism in place? You know, have you got appropriate uh, restrictions on child labor? So, you know, very clear uh, underlying requirements. Okay. And then, so is there any independent testing that goes on or it's really all a self-assessment around that? So the phase in the first two years will be self-assessment. Okay. So, you know, we're doing this for the first time. So wanted to see how this works out and yeah. we might have to tweak the way it works based on the you know the experience the members have but then we will move into third party validation we'll go into a 3 year cycle so every single site at least once every 3 years will go through this process and the the members will determine based on a material and and uh, you know risk basis a subset for third party validation by way of bringing in, you know, a set, uh, an additional set of eyes to look at the self-assessments. Okay, that's extraordinary. Um, you mentioned earlier that you had an extraordinary meeting today with your members. Uh, what was the topic for today? There was one sort of substantive topic, which was the the Global Tailings Review. Okay. A year ago, which was shortly after the Brumadinho tragedy, we agreed to co-convene a Global Tailings Review with the United Nations Environment Programme and PRI, Principles for Responsible Investment. And over the last year... We've made a lot of progress on that. We agreed a, a framework for the review. We hired an independent chair who's a very respected former Swiss environment minister. He has run a process of you know, collecting an expert panel together, preparing a draft which has been out for public consultation, global consultation with seven or eight in-country consultations, as well as being online, multiple languages. And he's now digesting the the comments, which is a complicated process because he had more than 200 sets of comments. He's also had comments from us, of course, and from the other co-conveners. 
and he's now busy distilling that into a, um, an updated draft. And, it, and the purpose of the meeting was to discuss progress and uh, you know work through the next steps with the members. Members have got a lot of interest in this because they've committed to accept the final product. Okay. Uh, so they're watching the, the process very closely. Right. And then we also had two more administrative uh, things that we discussed, which was new members. So okay. uh, Sabanyi took over Lonmin about a year ago. And we have a process whereby if there's a material change in ownership, then we bring in the independent panel that I mentioned. We, re- we assess the new set of assets. So they've just been through that process and uh, they've been uh, found to basically be up to scratch and okay. uh, came in as with full membership today and also a name change. And then we had two affiliate members. One was the Ecuadorian Chamber of uh, Mining okay, and then the Canadian Mining Innovation Council, CMIC. Great. So we're up to 38 now. Excellent. Well, congratulations. I've actually heard the ICMM standards on tailings uh, discussed quite a bit here at the conference. And so you had a standard before, and this is really going to be enhancing that as we go forward. Yes. Yeah, so after the Samarco incident, we conducted a similar review, but it was an internal review. And we came up with what we call a position statement, which is essentially a commitment that sits alongside the, the, the 10 founding principles. So we had a position statement on tailings. It focused largely on uh, governance and change management. This global tailings review that we're going through now with hopefully at the end of the process, a standard is going to be much more holistic. It's going to look beyond governance issues, beyond change management. It's going to look into emergency planning, uh, disclosure, the uh, principles behind how you design these things, um, and then also a consequence uh, classification process so that uh, people will be classifying what they've got against a, you know, a, a range of different criteria so that essentially investors and other stakeholders can understand exactly what a company has in its portfolio. That kind of clarity, uh, the marketplace uh, would be very interested in seeing some of those yeah. results and how do they compare and contrast and, and identify what standard someone's operating at. Obviously, companies use independent engineers and use independent reviews, but something that comes up with another standard for the industry is, yeah. I think, going to be more than welcomed. Yeah, and I think we're meeting, trying to meet the needs of investors. And, and importantly, because we're doing this with other people, the PRI and the and UNEP, we're hoping to maximize uptake beyond ICMM. So if it was just ICMM designing something, the, the risk is that, that all of the other companies in the industry would say, well, you know, this is just another ICMM uh, project and uh, why should we sign up to this? And uh, because we've got PRI at the table and investors being part of the design, we're hoping that investors will be encouraging uptake uh, and, you know, asking other companies to consider adopting the, the standard as well. Right. So we want it to be a global standard. We, we we want to avoid it just being ICMM. I think the you know the whole industry could do with you know a bit more transparency about how they manage these these assets. Well, I think the market's clamoring for that. Yep. So I applaud I applaud that. Um, why don't we transition a little bit? Um, sure. Other big issues that are facing your members today uh, that they're focusing on with you. The key issues that the members face, and we we sort of try to track how the. Uh, issues evolve and, and, you know, what are the societal expectations? We think there are six key things that we're facing today as a membership. So the first one, obviously, is tailings. Yes. And we just discussed that. Uh, the second one is the future of work. So with automation, mm. companies are going to yep. need different types of skills. And also the communities that are around the mines, um, if they're to benefit, you know, in terms of jobs and uh, procurement, they'll also need different skills. So, you know, we're we're trying to think with the members about how to 
prepare for that change. In fact, the change is already happening, um, but it's only likely to accelerate. The third one is uh, disruption. So that's kind of related to the automation thing, okay. but that's more being able to be ready for the technical disruption that's coming, the different types of uh, processes that are coming, the impact on commodities, especially smaller commodities because of disruption. The fourth one is stewardship, and that basically means stewardship of the environment uh, with a strong focus on climate change. And a lot of stakeholders are putting that as sort of number one in terms of you know, what they'd like to see from our members. Human rights and uh, community engagement and, and uh, you know, at your panel at lunchtime, you know, there was a lot of emphasis on the S in the ESG. Correct. Uh, so social social impacts and, uh, you know, there's a there's sort of increasing focus, especially in some parts of the world, on human rights and human rights defenders. A lot of focus generally on interaction with communities. And then finally, a lot of demand for greater transparency and accountability, which sort of covers all of the all of those other issues. And uh, one of the challenges which I think companies are facing is there are multiple voluntary initiatives. You know, most commodities have got their own initiatives now, like the Aluminium Stewardship Initiative. So how do you do your day job and, and yet also meet all these transparency and accountability requirements? Yeah, I was struck today at the uh, the lunch around ESG. You know, first off, that, that observation for the mining industry. And the word E, when we typically use it in almost all industries except mining, really just means how do we move to a low-carbon world. Yep. But in mining, it actually is quite a bit deeper than that, right, in terms of how they use energy. Uh, but you also get into water, you get into aerial displacement, yep. into much, much more, you know, sophisticated environmental thought process. Uh, the S is also quite a bit more sophisticated than many industries yeah. because most mines don't operate in nice big urban centers. Yeah. They operate in regions of the world where you do have uh, quite a social impact yeah. on that local community. And so, you know, bringing that to life and seeing how it responds uh, to it. The other takeaway I had at lunch today was really just with the two CEOs that were up on stage, uh, how committed they are, uh, both fundamentally. Yeah. They both started the concept off with just purpose, which is why do we exist as a company? Uh, and, you know, the old format of I produce a metal to make money is gone, yeah. right? They really see themselves as a a driving force of social change and behaving, I think we heard it a couple of times, doing the right thing in the right way. Yeah, and I think there's, I mean, there's two comments I'd make on that. One is that, you know, these mining principles, which I've been talking about, are uh, essentially designed to help companies, as investors and other stakeholders, assess whether companies are managing risks properly. But one of the things that people like Sustainalytics and MSCI and other other people, you know, assessing ESG performance don't think about is the the positive impacts. So they're very good at assessing and measuring the risks and whether, you know, we heard on the panel at lunchtime, you know, people were talking about, well, good ESG means minimizing the potential for a blow up. But they tend to think about, are you managing and mitigating all of these risks? And there's not enough weight given to the positive impact, to the upside, you know, the sort of the transformation that uh, people like Mark uh, with Anglo-American and other companies can have on the ground if they think through this you know, very carefully. And, uh, you know, I always say, uh, if you put, if you want to put a dollar into a company where you're going to make the most positive social impact, you put it into the DRC. Because, mm. because for every direct job you create, you're going to create 25 indirect jobs. If you put it into Australia, it's going to be three to five. If you put it into a supermarket in London, it's going to be probably one to one or something like that. Mm. So, you know, if you really want to have social impact, you should be thinking about, you know, the really poor, countries where any kind of foreign direct investment makes a huge difference. And, and of course, it, if it's responsibly done, then so much the better. 
That's right. And I think that to me is a real interesting leg to the conversation that's changing. Yeah. It's gone from a pain and punishment thesis, you know, a divestment or others to uh, how do we think about transition to uh, the point you just made, which is what is the upside opportunity? Yeah. Uh, if you listen to the examples mining companies use today about what they're doing uh, to enhance uh, either their social impact or their environmental impact, you can come out and say it's all at a concept of doing something better. Almost all of it came with a financial outperformance. Yeah, And so it came with both pieces, which is the doing more to transition, more to create uh, a better outcome, but it actually creates more value at the yeah, same and time. Yeah, and it's risk mitigation. It's just uh, coming at it from a slightly different different angle. The second thing I want to say is, you know, you, you mentioned the point about purpose, and uh, I think that's becoming more and more important for the next generation of investors, you know, younger people. It's not only that they want to work for companies where there's a strong sense of purpose, but they want to put their money into companies where there's a str- strong sense of purpose. And so you see, you see that sort of that change happening. And uh, I think companies these days are in competition for talent with the likes of Google and Apple. You know, they need software programmers. They want, they want, they need people with much softer engineering skills. And those people will come to companies where there's a clear sense of purpose. And it's the same thing with the next generation of investors. You know, they, they really want their money to make a difference. And it's not just about the, you know, the, the sort of the highest return. It also has to be responsible. So I think Mark and Tom are hitting exactly the right point. That's right. We may not know it, but BMO actually launched its own purpose last year, ah, uh, well. which is uh, the phrase that we use is to boldly grow the good in business and life. Yeah. And uh, I can see it galvanizing itself through our employee base uh, and our customer base. And, that you know, we're actually making decisions different. We're behaving different. Uh, and I think we already were a very highly responsible company to start yeah. with. But I'm starting to see it flow through in the way uh, we make things, you know, including we have a commitment to make a $400 billion mobilization of finance for sustainable finance. That's great right? to Obviously, hear. Obviously, uh, the backdrop to how BMO thinks about the world is how do we, in my mind, is motivate and move money is how we make change can happen. Yeah, and I hope, hope you're seeing that translate into being able to attract the best and the brightest. Uh, we're starting to see that. We are yeah. starting to see that. Yeah. Maybe one last question, Tom, as we start to think about the environment and you think about your members and how ICMM is helping them think about the reduction of uh, greenhouse gases and transitioning to a low carbon uh, economy. Yeah. Uh, how are you helping them? How are your members responding? Uh, what are some of the more interesting conversations you've seen in the last little while? Yeah. So that, uh, there's, there's uh, two or three things that uh, we're doing on this. So the first one is... Um, Probably the probably the most uh, important from a collaborative point of view is uh, what we call the Innovation for Cleaner, Safer Vehicles okay. initiative, which is what I yep. spoke about um, earlier yesterday. This is quite innovative for us because we, uh, for the first time, have brought the OEMs, the original equipment manufacturers, into the room. And so we're collaborating with the supply chain. This is an attempt to align their priorities in terms of you know, where they're spending their R&D and where they're putting their money into developing the next generation of vehicles. And the program has three priorities. One is collision avoidance technology, which is obviously driven by the impact that vehicles have in terms of fatalities. About 30% of ICMM's fatalities are caused by vehicles. Hmm, the, the second okay. one is DPM, diesel particulate matter, which is right. carcinogenic, and we need to get that down to as low as possible, ideally zero. And then the third uh, area is um, transition from away from using diesel in these vehicles. So uh, alternative um, energy supply, either electric directly or electric batteries or 
you know, as Mark would say, hydrogen. It's technology agnostic, but we're trying to um, align them in terms of, you know, giving them some clear priorities and also helping the members assess where they stand today in terms of this evolution and giving them benchmarking tools so that they can move faster up that curve. So that's a big collaborative effort. And that's, by the way, about 30% of the total emissions at site are from vehicles. So, hmm. you know, if we can if we can accelerate that change, we're making a big difference through the membership. The second area where we're working with members is just bringing them together to share knowledge and learning and case studies across the membership in terms of, you know, what they're doing, uh, how they're improving efficiency, and also um, how they're transitioning away from hydrocarbons to renewable energy. And then at the membership level, we're seeing uh, loads of examples today on, on you know how members are moving away from hydrocarbons. And, um, Mike Henry, for example, announced yesterday that the transition to renewable energy in Chile is going to reduce their emissions by about 60% in Chile. Which is um, amazing. Yeah. And, and, and it's not just BHP, just about everyone is... Uh, you know, they're experimenting with solar panels. They're, where they're operating in countries with grids, they're procuring renewable energy across the grid. Um, and then we see examples like, you know, Newmont's uh, mine that used to be Goldcorp, where they've actually, you know, built an all-electric mine where, and, and as you know, most of the electricity in Canada is, is green. That's so, correct. you know, that's also a transition away from hydrocarbon. So there are lots of examples at the member level, and we're fostering collaboration where it makes sense to bring them together to learn from each other on, you know, what, what can be done to accelerate this. And where do you think this transition in dealing with climate change sits on the company's agenda? Is it top of the stack, middle of the stack? Where do you think it sits? I think it's pretty high. I mean, I think they hear from end consumers about it. They hear from investors about it. They hear from their own employees about it. You know, I was, I was, um, I was surprised as not a member, but I, I was uh, surprised the other day to hear that even companies like uh, Trafigura are having to develop their position on climate change, and they are oil traders, because their own employees are demanding it. So, you know, I think all of our members and, and, and possibly across the industry are hearing about this, uh, you know, from all quarters. I think that's absolutely true. We hear it at BMO with our employees, which are a passionate bunch. Yeah. So we hear it loud and clear uh, where this sits on their agenda. Yeah. Good uh, to hear. So, Tom, thank you very much. It's great to see the great work that ICMM is doing. Thank you for your contribution on that. Thanks, Dan. Thanks for the opportunity and thanks for having me here. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Sustainability Leaders. This podcast is presented by BMO Financial Group. To access all the resources we discussed in today's episode and to see our other podcasts, visit us at bmo.com forward slash sustainability leaders. You can listen and subscribe free to our show on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast provider, and we'll greatly appreciate a rating and review and any feedback that you might have. Our show and resources are produced with support from BMO's marketing team and Puddle Creative. Until next time, I'm Michael Torrance. Have a great week. The views expressed here are those of the participants and not those of Bank of Montreal, its affiliates, or subsidiaries. This is not intended to serve as a complete analysis of every material fact regarding any company, industry, strategy, or security. This presentation may contain forward-looking statements. Investors are cautioned not to place undue reliance on such statements as actual results could vary. This presentation is for general information purposes only and does not constitute investment, legal, or tax advice, and is not intended as an endorsement of any specific investment product or service. Individual investors should consult with an investment, tax, and or legal professional about their personal situation. Past performance is not indicative of future results.